0: Um, second or third time Um, we've got several gentlemen out at the Ignite uh, talk and uh, my son-in-law is with my daughter who is now beyond two centimeters dilated and having contractions every 15 minutes so I expect that I'll be a grandpa by tomorrow. So uh, let's uh, uh, let's open with some uh, some prayer. I think I have. Some blessings over the Torah. And with my glasses I can read them. Blessed you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who set us apart in order to sanctify us for his commandments and instructed us to occupy ourselves with words of Torah. Adonai, our God, please make the words of your Torah pleasant in our mouths and in the mouths of your people, the family of Yisrael, so that we, our offspring, and the descendants of your people, the family of Yisrael, all of us, may be knowers of your name and learners of your Torah for its own sake. Blessed you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Yisrael. Blessed you, I our God, King of the universe who chose us from all the nations of the world to give us his Torah. Blessing you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Dang, okay. By the way, I like that t-shirt. Thank you. I almost bought one. <laughs> it is a good deal, and it really makes you stop and think. They do last. They do last. Well, as I put in my, uh, in my note... I really would like us to discuss, in a gentle way, why we keep the commandments. Because it occurred to me that keeping kosher is not the, uh, not the biggie here, uh, I think, for the men who are not uh, necessarily keeping the commandments or have not been convicted to do so. The issue is not whether they should keep kosher. It's whether or not the commandments are applicable in our lives so with that in mind uh, I asked you last time uh, what uh, kosher kind of guy you were and by way of reminder we have uh, uh, eating kosher is one crazy, two optional, three easy or four just the beginning and uh, you should have come up with a uh, a number that kind of set where you were. I'm going to move over here so the entire Gordon family can see past me. Ken, can you still see there? Sure. Okay. So, um, you all got your numbers? You know where you're at? Timothy? Mm-hmm. What number are you, bud? Uh, I think just the beginning. Just the beginning, number four. I like that. Joe? Four. Yeah. Four. Yeah. Four.
1: Four. 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 Uh-huh. I can see as
0: <laughs> oh, praise God. Can I love you to death. All right. I have up here, um, culled from my own history as well as from my friends and family, um, reasons for not keeping kosher. And um, I I think that the answers to these questions in a gentle way over this first hour are just as important as what we talk about with regard to keeping kosher and the specifics of separating meat and dairy uh, in the second hour. I know that man. Come, sit. We We do have a minion now. So uh, I would like us to walk through some of these, and um, I'm going to ask you to bite your tongue. I think we find uh, in Christendom when we've been in the church for so many, many years and some noob comes walking in and uh, you can tell from his eyes he just had a joint in the parking lot, but, you know, he wants to be there for the Sunday morning service because the girl he's trying to hang up with is, uh, is there and uh, really nobody's willing to take him to task for his lifestyle. And... Uh, I would suggest that it's in those days that we would tend to be very stiff with Christian terms and talking about the Spirit coming down heavy on him and, you know, uh, a mighty anointing and some other terms. He has no clue what we're talking about. So I'm going to ask you to bite your tongue and work back to where you first walked into this walk as we go through these things, okay? So... um I want you to consider that everyone in this room believes wholeheartedly that they should be keeping all the commandments of God, whether that's true in this room or not, because I know that there are many listening to us in faraway places, in faraway lands, and really in places like Gastonia, where they they may not even have a Bible, let alone know whether or not they need to keep the Torah. So... Uh, for those that are far away, and actually for the friends that I've made long distance that have been writing to me and thanking us for putting this on. Um, let's just walk through these. Um, I have uh, about six uh, statements on the uh, slide here, and we're going to try and walk through each one. Um, and and I'd like you to just give a a good response, not a not a biblical response, not a logical response, not a scholarly response, but from the heart. Okay? So the first one, um, why, would, why aren't you keeping kosher? Um, the first response, and I think the most generic response is, we don't have to keep the God's commandments any longer. Who can tell me first, from their perspective... Where are they coming from? What's, what's their normal uh, raison d'etre with regard to this particular point? Yes, sir? The, uh, the uh, contrast of the law and grace. Absolutely. They're juxtaposing law against grace, and, and primarily from Paul's writings, to say, well, we're no longer under the law. We're under grace. Good. Yeah, it's,
2: it's,
1: it has to get back to the uh, dispensationalist.
0: Sure. That's, that's bad. Exactly. That was then, this is now, before we were under law. And what kind of God was that? Angry. Oh, angry, angry and, and, angry and mean, Old Testament God. But now we're under grace, and now what kind of God do we have? Uh, we have a loving God, we have Jesus, he's our buddy, and so forth. Now, um, that's, that's a different kind of theology. But I think, uh, I think that really mainly is where, where, where they're coming from. Um, now, there's a couple of problems with this theologically. First, with the God that was angry and now is loving, what's the problem there, theologically? What's the problem? God, has
2: changed. God, has changed.
0: God is immutable, or it doesn't change if you live in Gastonia. So, um, so, it's not possible, right, that God would be angry in this point of time, and in this point of time, he would be loving. What's another problem with God's character changing in that fashion?
2: That make not very
0: trustworthy. Okay, it, it denigrates his character mm-hmm. because if he chose, or if he was this way then and he was this way now, maybe he'll be a different way in other times. That's good. Not the one I was looking for, but another one. It's inconsistent with regard to time which means that not only is God immutable, but we also need to recognize that God is not in time. He made time. So if He's in time changing, you've got two problems with your God. First, His immutability questions His divinity. And second, He's not transcendent. He's not other than His creation. He's evidently a part of it and influenced by it. Well, no, you may be getting ahead of me, but if you're getting ahead of yourself, then you've already said what you have to say. Yes, sir. Oh, yes. That's a good point. Thank you. Thank you. No, I was just going to say that last point really goes into, I think, the next one about Yeshua fulfilling the law, because then you have God stepping inside of time and changing things. Yeah. Well, it's a good point. Yeshua fulfilled the law is our next one with Matthew 5. and. Really, what's the argument there? From from their side, what's the argument? Yeshua fulfilled the law. He kept all
1: the law. He completed the laws at verse. So right. We don't, we don't have
0: to. So it's filled up. That word, play rao means to fill up fully. As
1: if to, to complete it. And therefore... And therefore, the, the, the effect of that is to abolish it, which, of course, is exactly opposite of the first half of that verse. Well,
0: that's exactly right. So before we get to abolish, let's finish with play rao and fulfilling.
1: Uh, the common uh, text that we can go to is uh, John, uh, John uh, baptizing Yeshua. The same word, exact identical word, there is Pleru And the Master said to John, "It's that actually baptize, it's, it's I
0: mean, play ra- oh.
1: Baptize me, we might fulfill all,
0: all the law, right. All, right? all the righteousness. All right. righteousness. All right. That's right. Yes, we need to fulfill all righteousness. I mean,
1: if that's to complete and set aside, that means that righteousness was. done away with, with. Then why did he have to go to the? That's a good point. I've heard it put this way that the law required something of us and that Yeshua fulfilled it, that is, he paid it in
2: full, almost like he got the stamp of chiching. Yes. And then he gave it back, and now it's of, of no use to us because he stamped it.
0: Okay, good. Good. Yeah, that's that's good. And and of course, we're, we're uh, quoting all from Matthew 5. What verses? Two so verses.
2: 17
0: through 19. Right? 17, 18, 17 through 19, sure. So, um, specifically, The Master is telling us something. And I think we need to focus on a couple of things. The first part of the reference, I think, is really the most important. Because he doesn't say, don't say this to other people. He says, don't even think this. Don't even think that I came to abolish the law. And in this case, I think the context would teach us that it's Torah, the law of God. But rather, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So to Greg's point, they're not juxtaposed. They are not the same. So it's a great question that you might ask someone in professional Christendom today, living within the uh, church walls, who believes that uh, we don't need to keep the commandments any longer, for whatever reason, if if that person's referencing Matthew 5. Good. I think better, though. We've got a better answer, or a better question. Do we have a new heaven
2: or a new earth?
0: Okay, good, because that's the back end, because until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle or stroke of the law will pass away. I think we've still got a better question. Did
2: Jesus keep all
0: the commandments? I don't know that I would go there. That's our next line, right? Um, No, I think here's a great question. I would write this down. You might want to think about this. So the text says that Yeshua did not come to abolish but to fulfill the Torah. And you believe that. You do believe that. If that's true and you don't think we need to keep the commandments anymore, well then tell me, how would your life be different if he had come to abolish it? I can tell you that I've gotten more response from that question than any other I ask with regard to Torah observance. How would your life be different if he had abolished the law? And they stop. They think, well, I don't know. Well, maybe you don't know how your life would be different because you act like he did abolish it. But if he didn't abolish it, he fulfilled it. It has to be different than abolishing it. That's simple grammar. Okay. So, Yeshua fulfilled the law. We know this is true. He did fulfill each point and aspect of the law that spoke about the need for a righteous one to take the punishment for the innocent, for the uh, sinners. Well, and I think one way
2: to better to better describe the connotation that's implied is that he he filled it full
0: demonstrated for us the proper application of the Torah. How it applies in our lives. And so,
1: by in so doing, he filled it with relevant meaning for
0: all of us. Wow, beautiful. Excellent. Excellent uh, translation of, uh, of the text. All right. Um, yes?
2: I was just going to say that the next couple topics happen to be courses divided devoted to you know discussion for an entire class all on their own yes of course but um, Tim Hagg's 10 persistent questions address many of those beautifully they sure uh, do for those who are listening they sure do those in the class who haven't been through that They're just it's good stuff yes very very good very clear very articulate and beautiful
0: if you believe this is another reason if you believe that you need a Savior, then you recognize that you are a... What makes you a sinner?
2: Transgression,
0: transgression, transgression of God's law. All right, so let me get this now, from a logic perspective. So, you're a sinner because you broke the law. And now that you're a saint, you're going to continue to break the law? Because of some... Legal technicality? I'm I'm missing something, and that was Paul's argument. You know, if my sin caused Yeshua to be glorified, well, then maybe I should sin all the more. I mean, my goodness, right? And yeah, right. So Paul is very clear. That's not a good argument.
2: I like the speeding ticket analogy. How you, know, you get pulled over for speeding, and well, Jesus nailed that speeding ticket to the cross, and I'm like. But the the traditional thought tends to stop there. The next step is the, guess what, speed limit's still there when you get back out on the road.
0: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. If you're not going to do your time in prison for speeding through that time and potentially killing people, you argue that all you want. That's the salvation and grace of God. But when you get behind the wheel, it's still the same speed limit. The law hasn't changed. The food laws were done away Now, we're going to focus more generically about Torah keeping and and, and look at at food laws. Um, Food laws were done away with in Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10. How would you respond to that gently and simply, especially to that person who does not know Acts chapter 10?
2: Oh, he wasn't really.
0: I think that's probably the best answer. He wasn't talking about food, and the vision wasn't talking about food. But the, it begs the question, how do you know that? You
2: have to read the next chapter. You have to read
0: the text. You to
2: read the next chapter. Right?
0: And if you read the text, both in Acts chapter 10 and in Acts chapter 11, Peter makes it clear he had absolutely no clue what this vision was all about. I was completely perplexed. I had no idea. Now I understand what the vision was all about. When he's talking to the Italian guy, that would be Cornelius for those of you uh, not familiar with the text. And he says, later on to the Jerusalem council, when he gets back, they, they, they chew him up, right? They're like, hey, you went in and ate with uncircumcised Gentiles. Oh my goodness. And he said, you know what? I didn't know what the vision was. And then I figured out what the vision was all about. I'm not supposed to call unclean what God never called unclean. So, is it really about food? I think a plain reading of the text in just about any version will help with that. The uh, next one is uh, famous. Yeshua declared all foods clean in Mark chapter 7. What it, what can we say again about Mark 7 that we said about Acts chapter 10? That one was not
2: about food. It's
0: that one was not God. about food either, it's right? It was about ritual clean, cleanliness, you bet. And also, <clears throat> when Yeshua says it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean, he's talking about... Absolutely. He's, uh, he's got a great reference to bathroom stuff going on there, uh, and it's laid out pretty nicely for us. What's the problem with this point, that Yeshua declared all food clean and effectively changed the Torah?
1: I think the strongest, I mean, I think the strongest argument is that Yeshua is, is chiding the, the Pharisees, the Purushim, yes, because they're nullifying the commandments of God through They're making him of no effect. If it would be in essence, then at the end Yeshua would discount everything he just said by saying, I'm actually nullifying
2: the Torah.
0: What's the problem with him doing that? What's the problem with Yeshua saying? Oh, oh, that's okay. You you don't need to do that anymore. It
2: would
0: disqualify him. It would disqualify him as who? As Messiah. Messiah. It would also disqualify him according to Deuteronomy 13 as a Prophet. prophet. Yeah. Can't be. That's the whole idea. Here you got got this, this group of people in the wilderness and they're told, I'm going to send you prophets. They're going to teach you. They're going to chide you. They're going to correct you. You need to listen to them. How are we going to know which ones we're supposed to listen to? Well, if a guy comes up and changes the Torah, gives you a different way to live, that guy didn't come from me. But when you see a guy like that, it's because I sent him and I'm testing you to see if you're going to listen to what I'm telling you right now. Great test. No one can judge another regarding festivals or food, Colossians chapter 2. You tell me I'm, I'm supposed to abstain from certain meats and certain days of the week and so forth, and Paul made it clear that you know, you're not to act as my judge on that. What's the problem here? What, what, what's the text say?
1: demonstrates the inverse. It demonstrates that they were observing the set times of Hashem. It's that these others, this other sect, was judging them as to how they were doing it. Exactly. As we read further on, that this other sect was actually worshipping angels. So, uh, I mean, uh, without getting too technical for, for the news, that uh, this was probably the beginnings of Gnosticism.
0: Sure. Within the early, uh, what would you recommend to someone in the... Uh... In the practicing church today, when it comes to Colossians chapter two, what would you have them do? Rip that page out. That was Luther's idea on several uh, pages. <laughs> Did you know that? Yeah, Luther tore out all of James. He just didn't like that at all. So that's that. And Esther, right? Yeah, I, I guess that 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 seems to be a. a A response, if you don't like something in the Bible, just tear those pages out. I don't know that that's a a wise way to do it. What would you recommend to someone reading Colossians 2? What have they done, and why are they concluding what they have? Well, apparently it doesn't line up with what they've been taught. Okay. So, you either, A,
2: have to reject it entirely uh, as, oh, that can't be right, perspective that, hey, maybe he's talking about it from a different perspective.
0: Okay, how would you tell them to do that, Johnny?
2: Well, you'd have to make them under, let them understand that, okay, it's in the, within the context of keeping the commandments. So. Okay,
0: well, why would you say that, though? How would you tell them that it's in the context of keeping the commandments? How would you dress that? How would you present that so that they would believe
2: you? Well, was not Paul keeping all? Ah, the so we're going to go to the
0: life of the author. Yep. Right. So we need to start with reading this in the context of its historic background and the life of the author. What do we know about Paul in basic Christian terms? The guy was an. He was a Pharisee. In fact, in our day and age, he was an Orthodox Jew. Over the top. Right. So if you've got an Orthodox Jew writing the text of Colossians two, maybe you should perceive that perspective first and see if it changes the way you interpret it. Yes, sir. And then we give
2: them a copy of the letter
0: writer. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Although I would say that the letter writer is a heavy book for those who are not A, used to reading, B used to logical <laughs> argument, or C, used to the length of sentences that Mr. Hegg uses on a regular basis.
1: Well, that's
0: well, I would, I would say more than half, actually. And then uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, we should not abstain from certain foods or be commanded, because that's what was happening, you know, that uh, these that have denied the faith would abstain from certain foods and so forth. What, what would you say to that?
2: He's talking about food that actually is food. He has
0: Okay. Uh, your argument falls on deaf ears if they don't know what you mean by that, though. So back up, slow down, and tell me what that means. How would you present this to someone?
2: Well, Paul is not saying that, okay, well, let's go have the, the pulled pork barbecue sandwich or the shrimp cocktail. He's saying that, okay, well, some of you are saying, okay, these meats in the marketplace and things like that may not be fit. They're sold, and you know, the whole don't ask, don't tell... Thing, and then, so they're staying away from meat. Just going to eat vegetables, whatever the case may be. But if they're still talking about meat, it's still meat, which would be fit kosher uh, to begin with. They're not saying, okay, well, here's the 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 barbecue spare ribs, and then here's the chicken, and here's the the beef, and you know, the filet mignon, and everything over here. Well, that that's a different one for later, but. Uh, <laughs> um, He's not saying that, okay, pick one of these things or pick the vegetables. He's saying, okay, it's still within the kosher food group, but... I,
0: I agree with what you're saying. Okay,
2: am I not answering your question?
0: You are... You may be answering my question, but I think it would fall on deaf ears to someone in the church. Okay. How, again, would you present this so that they would believe what Johnny just said, which I believe is absolutely true? Oh. Well, how would you present it?
1: Verse three, it says
0: plainly that God created these fruits to be received with thanksgiving. So we could take that that reference, that string right there, and go back to the Torah. Okay, good, see in good, God, good. What's another reason? The same thing we just used of Yeshua. What could Paul not possibly be saying about those who say to abstain from certain meat? That God doesn't care about what you eat. I wouldn't go so far as that. Um... That probably is going to be our bottom line eventually, Jonathan. Thank you very much for jumping to the uh, <laughs> well, that, conclusion. Well, Paul, but rather that... Paul's not declaring all foods... The same thing we did here, right? Yeah. It, it's, it's the same thing here that Paul doesn't have the authority right. to change the Torah. Right. right? Because we get back to that fundamental understanding that we have, which is not that we can toss... 70-some-odd percent of our Bible because this part of our Bible begins with a blank page that says New Testament on it. No. Rather, we would look to the Torah first so that we would know right from wrong. We would know how to interpret the rest of it and see the prophets, the writings, and the apostolic writings in context of the Torah. So it's not possible that Paul could be saying to Timothy that these people who deny the faith are actually saying that food that is unfit is unfit. No. These people who have denied the faith are actually denying what the Torah says and saying that food, which is fit, is now to be abstained from. They are calling fit food unfit. That would be consistent. Tameh, which is what we pray at the end of every class, exactly right. Marriage, right? exactly they're, I mean they're they're violating a bunch of various commandments yeah, it, there right
2: that was the point I was going to make that the food and marriage are talked about in the same verse so, so Paul while well, if you just focus on the food then you, you might hyperbolize really what Paul's point is, is
0: really yeah exactly right and of course we know that getting married is one of the greatest mitzvahs right so there we go so bottom line what was the bottom line God does care about what we eat. How do I know this? Well, I think that uh, the three biggest reasons I would give are first, the garden command in Genesis 3. If God didn't care about what we eat, did you start reading at the beginning of the book? Do you know how this whole thing started? I mean, if you're only reading the New Testament, sooner or later you're going to fumble across this this statement that the whole earth groans underneath this curse. It begs the question, from where did this curse come? It came from the garden. What caused the curse? Somebody ate something they were told not to eat. You don't think God cares about what we eat? When did he change? My God's unchanging. Second, the false prophet thing we talked about in Deuteronomy 13. If there were, if you acknowledge in some way, shape, or form that there were some kosher laws at some point, how could there not be now? How could it have changed? If somebody comes along and changes anything in the Torah, they're to be considered a false prophet according to Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 12, as well as Revelation 22, says don't add or take away from this. Well, it looks like the Torah we got at the the mountain, we're stuck with. And then finally, the Jerusalem Council, in Acts chapter 15, makes it clear that, I mean, regardless of what you believe about the Jerusalem Council and whether it was the beginning of Torah observance or the end of Torah observance, they still didn't want these people to eat Meat with blood. There were limitations on their diet. And one asked the question where do you go with that?
1: And, and, and just as a quick comment, I think that that's a stark difference
2: between the Jewish mindset and the, what we have inherited as the Christian mindset. Whereas Judaism would focus on the fact that at least there's four commandments here, and we're going to talk about blood in, in, in our meat and, and what that looks like, and we're going to extrapolate that to make no errors.
1: Whereas the Christians are vaguely aware that it's really there to begin with. Yeah.
0: And, that, and actually, it's, it's really more like four categories. Four categories. Precisely. Exactly. Instead of four little bullet points. Good. Um, I gave you a little um, table here of uh, uh, three terms and their meaning and the opposite word and their meaning kosher, meaning holy, uh, as opposed to chol, which means common. So those are the opposites. Tahor, which means pure, and tameh, which means impure, and we have that in our uh, prayer at the end of uh, most classes, and then kosher, which means fit, or lo kosher, which means unfit. Those could also mean acceptable and unacceptable. And though that last one does not, actually, none of those only refer to food. None of them only refer to food. When we uh, come upon Sukkot and you choose to in obedience to the command build a Sukkah the question you need to ask yourself is is this a kosher Sukkah? what does that mean? you're going to eat the Sukkah? no it means is it fit or is it acceptable? does it meet the commandment? or did you just waste all the lumber or palm fronds or whatever it is you were doing there? we move on everybody got that? anybody need more time to uh, complete? we'll, we'll continue just we'll finish up you got it? You got
2: it? Semitism, that's worked its way into modern culture is to say that something's kosher, even if you're not talking about food in any way. It's common terminology.
0: One would think. Okay. I gave you this slide last time, and I didn't really want to have to swipe so many times. There we go. Um... This is what we're going to talk about in the next hour. These three references Exodus 23 19, 34 26, which are both absolutely verbatim, word for word, letter for letter, identical. And then finally, Deuteronomy 14 21, both, all of which end with exactly the same phrase. The first two, the best of the first fruits or bickerim of your ground, you shall bring into the house of Adonai Elohe. The Lord your God, Lo, Tavashel Gedi, Imchalev, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Both of those verses say exactly that. The third one in Deuteronomy fourteen, twenty one, you shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to and here we go again. Adonai Elohei, the Lord your God. Lo tevashel geddi im chalev. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So my goal tonight, in the second hour, we're going to take a quick break, is, is, is essentially this. If you agree that the commandments are applicable in our lives, and that my righteous walk is borne out by my actions that are consistent with God's commandments and that my former life in disobedience is juxtaposed to my life of obedience to his commands, if you look at me and see the expression of my faith made manifest in my actions of obedience to a holy God, this would naturally then, I believe, be borne out also in what I eat and, sometimes more importantly, what I choose not to eat. So the question that I want us to end up either pondering over as we get in the car tonight or wrestling with in the second hour is, is there a difference between biblical kosher and rabbinic kosher? And if there is, where is that difference? So the question is going to be, basically, assuming you all keep the commandments of God, what are you going to do with these three verses? Are you going to ignore them? Are you going to put them in the mental category of, you know, I don't want to ignore any of God's word, but I'm not really sure what those mean, so I'm going to ignore them until I understand them. which is what most of us would do. It's what I've done for many, many years. Or are you going to uh, assume they can't possibly mean what you don't want them to mean, and then you effectively are going to walk away from them? That's what we're going to come back and talk about. So let's take a quick break, because when we come back, the gloves come off, guys.